before we get started, uh, I get disproportionately privileged as your pastor. Uh, occasionally, I get to do some things that are very special. And I uh, and Angel, my wife, uh, last Saturday, not last night, but a week ago, we had the privilege of representing Hillside at uh, the Share Imagine uh, Gala. Hillside, um, out of our budget, we support the, the great ministry of Share Family and Community Services. They're the largest nonprofit provider of social, social care in our community, food bank and counseling services and refugee services, you name it, they're, they're involved in all those kind of things and uh, we support them. What was really cool that night though, was that uh, someone heard that I was gonna be making this donation, uh, a hillsider heard that week that I was gonna be making this donation at this event and uh, they said, listen, whatever Hillside's giving, we'll match that. And so that night, that you'll see that, you might not see it as clear, but uh, on the check, I was able, when I got up to the front, they gave me the big check to present. I was able to cross out 2,500 and write 5,000. And uh, what a great gift that we were able to sow into our neighborhood. It was, it was cool, too. Uh, I was the only presenter. I mean, the casino presented and a couple other organizations presented large gifts, and uh, I was the only one that they gave a microphone to, which is a dangerous thing, <laughs> giving a pastor a microphone, right? But I was able to, I think, sing Cher's praises, but also our partnership with them, the food bank that we have in our building every week is such a blessing to our community, and uh, let's keep praying for their very good work. Amen? Very cool. like sharing those things. Well, I think it's good timing to be talk about, talking about the theme we're going to be talking about or looking at this morning. Uh, a couple of weeks ago was International Women's Day. And for the last couple years, there's been a lot of buzz around issues to do with women. Think of Hollywood and Me Too. Uh, think of church and, and church too. And uh, you may have not heard about this, but uh, last week, there was a lot of uproar on the internet over a Christian blogger uh, who uh, works under John Piper's ministry, who wrote a very critical review of the movie Captain Marvel because it featured a strong women heroic figure, that the, the woman was the superhero in that film, and, and it caused such a backlash because he said, shouldn't it be a male figure in that role? So, yeah, kind of... Uh, actually, Ben and I went and saw the movie last week, and I thought the, the heroic figure was a-okay. She was pretty good. But it, it begs the question, one of the questions that gets asked in our culture, is Christianity unfair to women? Does the Bible say that men are supposed to be in charge all the time? Uh, I came across a, a letter a, a, among, among a bunch of letters that children had written to God, and this one girl wrote, Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but please try to be fair. <laughs> well, we're in this series called Gifts, how God gives us gifts so that we can be used by him to actually change the world. And this morning when it comes to this issue of women, I want to ask, are they given gifts too? Are they given gifts of, of leadership and teaching in the church? And I, church, and I want to ask the question, why not women? And so we'll take a look at some of the biblical teaching on this subject and explain why we believe as a church that the Bible in general and Jesus in particular has been a force to raise up the value and worth and dignity of women like no other. Furthermore, we believe that the New Testament 
properly interpreted, interpreted, there's no such word as interpreted, just telling you, interpreted in its first century context, not only doesn't close the door to women in teaching and leadership ministry, in fact, I'd propose the New Testament interpreted in its first century context actually opens the door to, to assume, for women to assume ministry and, and leadership roles in the church. It's a big topic. Uh, we're going to dive into just a moment, but let's pause and pray. Uh, you're going to need your active brains today to, to, to go along for the ride. So Jesus, we invite you to speak to us this morning. Help us to be learners today. Uh, to hear what you're saying to your church today and uh, to learn from your word uh, what it says about this topic. We pray, grant us grace to hear you. We, we, We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so buckle up, I said. Let's start by going back to the beginning. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we're told God created human beings, male and female. And the big questions are, are why did he do that? And was it God's original plan for one of those genders, for, for men to be in charge? In, in the second chapter of, of Genesis, we read, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So, so God makes Adam a helper. That's, that's the woman. Now, now when I grew up, I, uh, I had the idea helper here meant that God made the woman as kind of a junior assistant to help the man get his work done. That, that was kind of the idea I got. It was like the man was really busy and he needed some help, someone who could, he could delegate stuff to while he went about the business of subduing the earth. The problem with this thinking is, and many, some, many of you would know this, is that word translated helper is used a number of times in the Old Testament. By far, the person who's most often referred to is God himself. An example in in Psalm 33, we wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. That's the same word. If that word is used most often for God, then clearly helper does not mean somebody that's lower on the organizational chart. And so it's important to notice what the helper is to help the man to do. God doesn't say, Adam isn't getting his chores done, so I'll give him an employee. God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In other words, the reason God made human beings was for them not to be alone and isolated, but to experience community and and oneness. That's what God loves. God lives his entire existence in a loving community of of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and, And he made human beings with a capacity, male and female, even though they're different, even though they're two, they can experience oneness. Now, now Adam could not experience community or, uh, on his own or, or with other animal creatures. When God created the woman, it wasn't to help Adam get his work done. It was to help him experience community. They were, they were peers. They, they were equally indispensable. Each was needed for, for them to achieve God's desire, goal of community and oneness. This gets expressed in the very first chapter of Genesis. So God created mankind. He created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In other words, woman woman, as well as man equally bear the image of God. Got to say, this was just a very uh, strange idea in the the, uh, ancient world. Unusual idea. Then God goes on to define the mission of humanity. But the Bible says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful 
and multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over, and he lists a bunch of things, including seed-bearing plants and animals and so forth. The text is very clear to say, to, to, to say God gives the mandate to rule over the earth, both to woman and to man. There's no hint of of any division of responsibilities. He doesn't say man is, ha- is to have dominion or authority over the woman, but they're both to have dominion over the earth. Well, then in the next chapter comes the fall, and it brings the consequence of, of what we've come to know as the curse, which involves all this, this brokenness as a result of, of, of their, their disobedience to God, their rebellion. And all kinds of things get kind of messed up and lost because of this. So there's a loss of innocence. Prior to it was they were naked and not ashamed. Now they're naked and, and ashamed. <laughs> and and, and the, we see the first cover-up happening in, in an early chapter of Genesis 3. There'd, there'd be death. Uh, their work would become toil. Their, their work would be frustrating. If you've ever had frustrating days at, at your workplace, that's a, a direct result of the curse. And there'd be this profound loss of oneness. Community would actually get broken. And then God says to the woman after the fall, as a result of this curse of sin, says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is pretty important. Um, you know, for my earliest years uh, as, a, as a churchgoer, when I was really young, I often heard this taught as if it was God's original plan for human beings, one gender holding power over the other, and he will rule over you. That wasn't God's plan. Here, it's just very clear. It came. It's, it's a result of the curse. It's part of the curse of brokenness and sin. See, because of the, the fall, the relationship between male and female, which was meant to be oneness, became a power struggle instead, <laughs> filled with pain. And we've seen evidence, we, we just look around the world, we see it all over the place, the, the brokenness between genders in our world today. There's sexism, but worse than that, there's sexual abuse. Worldwide statistics on sexual abuse is the one in three women will experience in their lifetime. Uh, some statistics say that only one in 20 Will, be, uh, will experience rape in their lifetime. I've also read statistics that one in five will experience a rape in their lifetime. It's, it's horrific. Uh, slavery and human trafficking, which seem to disproportionately affect women in our world, and cultures where women are subjugated in all kinds of ways, where, where women in certain cultures are the only workforce, while the men uh, live eat, drink, and be merry while the women bring home the bacon uh, by themselves, carry the burden of that. We see it in Me Too, as we've said in Hollywood, and we've seen it in church too. So as a result of the the curse of sin, you have this this profound brokenness between the genders. You've, You've seen it. I know you have. Maybe you saw it in your own home growing up. The community and oneness, which was was God's idea, was horribly thwarted. Well, enter the good news, because this is part of what Jesus died to overcome. Women, uh, I I want you not to be in any doubt about your worth to God. You were made in God's image, and you were made to rule. You were made not to rule over men, but men weren't made to rule over you either. 
but to rule and work side by side to develop and care for this, this wonderful creation that God gave all of us to be stewards of together. Now, because of the fall, that was lost. God's plan for, for oneness in marriage actually gave way to polygamy. We find this recorded in the earliest chapters of Genesis where a man could collect wives like chattel. By the way, those are descriptive passages, not prescriptive passages. You didn't have to do this. It was never endorsed in Scripture. Oh, divorce. A, a wife could be divorced for almost any reason, for burning the toast or putting too much salt in the soup or for speaking too loud. I'm just going to shut up right there. Back in the Old Testament, even in, the, in that ancient world, there were, though, what you might call grace notes of women playing surprising roles in God's redemptive work. For example, God chose women as well as men to be prophets. We read about Miriam in Exodus 15. Miriam is called a prophet of God. And in, in Numbers 12, she's called one through whom the Lord spoke. Then there's another woman uh, named Huldah. By the way, I think J.R.R. Tolkien got names for Lord of the Rings from this chapter in the Bible. I, I'm convinced of it. It, it sure seems like it. In the, in the book of 2 Kings, we're told when Josiah was the king, Israel was at this crisis point. It needed renewal. It needed to hear a, a word from God. And this is what we're told. Hilkiah the priest, along with, again, some interesting named guys, uh, go to speak to the, uh, the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom. And she said to them, this is what the Lord says. So here you've got the high priest and his his entourage going to a woman for authoritative instruction. Another place in the Old Testament, in, in Judges chapter 4, we're told Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, another name that I think should be in baby books today. Uh, don't you think? Lapidoth? Why hasn't that caught on? Come on, guys. It's a biblical name. So Deborah, a prophet, she was leading Israel at that time. In those days, judges were the authority figures in Israel. They exercised, you know, political and judicial and, and spiritual leadership. And that was a woman, Deborah. Deborah was the highest leader of Israel. And, and you've got to at least ask the question, if God is opposed to women in leadership, why would he put Deborah into that role? It's interesting. The text doesn't say, as some have alluded to, that now Deborah was chosen because no man was spiritually mature enough in that day. We don't read that anywhere in that text. The text simply, you know, accepts her as God's leader and voice to the people. So there are a number of women who are in remarkable roles, even in the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, things kind of even move along when it comes to God's use of women. One of the most revolutionary features of Jesus' ministry was his relationship to women. Uh, Dr. Paul Jewett of Fuller Seminary observed, he said, in this relationship, Jesus' lifestyle was so remarkable that one can only call it astounding. He treated women as fully human, equal to man in every respect. How so? Well, Jesus talked to women in public something that no rabbi, no teacher would have dared to do in that day. In fact, Jesus' longest recorded one-on-one -on -one conversation with a person was with a woman, the woman at the well in, in John chapter 4. We have more about that conversation than we do, do with any other conversation that Jesus had with one of his male disciples. 
Jesus went further. He, he allowed women to be part of his entourage. They were part of his, his band of disciples. Again, that's something that no rabbi would ever do. We, we know women like Mary Magdalene and Joanne and, and Susanna and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome and Mary and Martha and others. Joachim uh, Jeremiah, a brilliant New Testament scholar, called this fact an unprecedented happening in the history of that time. Jesus knowingly overthrew custom when he allowed women to follow him. Jesus went further still. He allowed women to sit at his feet and receive his teaching. Again, that was something that no rabbi ever did. Again, some, the, the thinking being, why does a woman need to learn? That was the thinking in that day. Remember Mary, uh, the sister of Martha? That great scene while Martha's in the kitchen doing the, the dishes. Mary breaks custom and was out in the living room behaving just like the, the male disciples sitting under the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus not only doesn't rebuke her, he blesses her. Jesus went further still. He allowed women to represent him to others, to be his evangelists. Again, the woman at the well who, having received grace from Jesus, returned to her village telling everyone she met, male and female, you got to come and meet the man who knew everything about me and who I think is the Messiah. And then, then of course, most astonishing were, was the women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb uh, at Easter. Isn't it significant that, that it was to a woman Jesus first chose to appear to as the risen Lord? Isn't it significant that the male disciples first heard the Easter gospel from women? The very first proclaimers of the gospel were women. N.T. Wright, uh, renowned uh, biblical New Testament scholar, uh, affirms women in, in roles of ministry and leadership. And I, I listened to him being interviewed on a podcast recently on this topic. When asked why he believes that, that women can serve equally in leadership in the church, his first answer is he points to the resurrection. He points to the fact that the women were the first witnesses to the, to the women at the tomb because the cross and resurrection of Jesus is all about the destruction of that curse that broke human relationships back in Genesis chapter 3. The world is getting a restart. This is the, the new creation that is starting now and, and having women be the, the first responders at the empty tomb was like God's exclamation mark that a new day had come. And then you get to the book of Acts, which is the story of this, this new creation community, this people of God, and, and women play an important role. Even before the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, we're told the disciples all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And of course, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on men and women, Peter explains it after, and he quotes Joel the prophet who said, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. The point? Peter's now saying that there has now come a spirit-inspired, authoritative, prophetic ministry which will include both men and women, which would happen, of course, only by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And this gets reflected in the lives of, of, of women in the early church in remarkable ways. There's a, there's a wonderful line in Acts chapter 21, and it's talking about Philip the evangelist, it's, which says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Can you imagine growing up in that family? Huh? Luke also tells us about another woman who'd, who'd later have a special place in Paul's life and work. Her name was Priscilla. Do you, do you remember the, the story? A guy by the name of, of Apollos came to the city of Ephesus, and, and Apollos was a, a brilliant scholar and a renowned orator. And, and, he, and after one day he taught in the, the synagogue, Priscilla and her husband Aquila took Apollos to the side to explain the way of Jesus more accurately. And what's significant about the way that, that Luke records the story is he mentions Priscilla's name first. You, you just got to know that that never happened in the first century. That, that never happened in that day uh, where you had the wife's name before the husband's name. But Luke did that. And then Paul, when he records the story as well, he, uh, he records a, a number of times uh, of Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila's uh, presence on the scene. And, and he, she's always mentioned first. Why? Well, likely because she was the primary one who straightened out the theology of Apollos. A woman taught a man, and, a, and Paul did not rebuke her or reprimand her. And then what about the place of, of women in the life and work of Paul himself? Of course there's Priscilla, but, but then there's others. I, one I'd mention would be Phoebe. Paul tells the believers in Rome in, in Romans 16, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may need of you, for she herself has been a helper of man and of myself as well. Now, Paul describes uh, Phoebe as a servant and a helper. The word translated servant is the Greek word diakonos. Whenever it describes a man in, in the New Testament, the the translations of the Bible use the word minister or deacon, but here it's translated servant. Now, it's a right translation, but, but why not be consistent? Either it's servant or minister, no matter the sex of the person being described. Paul also calls her a helper. The Greek word there is prostasis. The, the, the verb form is used in 1 Timothy 3 where Paul says, if a man does not know how to manage his household, manage being the, the word in question here, how will he take care of the church of God? It, it's used in, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 where Paul says, let the elders who rule, there's the word again, will be, uh, well be considered worthy of double honor. In, in the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament, prostasis status, translates the Hebrew word meaning overseer, officer, or deputy. And so one scholar, Dr. Scott Barche, says this. It says, it becomes clear that it is exceedingly misleading and inaccurate to translate prostatus in Romans 16.2 as helper or a great help. To be sure, it is easy to conclude that Phoebe was indeed a great help. But reckoned with Paul's use of this term here specifically indicates that Phoebe was a leader or overseer in her congregation. In fact, the, the new NIV actually has changed their word and, and she's now designated as a deacon in that passage. But all that to say is Phoebe functioned in a role that supposedly was only given to men. 
And Paul not only doesn't reprimand her, he commends her to the Roman church. There's another woman in in Paul's life we should mention. Again, in Romans chapter 16, Paul writes, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who were also in Christ before me. Junius. Most English translations translate the name like this, but in the best and earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, the name is actually Junia, which is a woman's name. What you have here is a woman who is being called an apostle by the apostle Paul. All all this to say, uh, where we've come from so far this morning, if you're following me, we start seeing in the Old Testament and then really deeply with Jesus and the New Testament church, this amazing elevation of women in God's community. But then, and that's a big but, what about those difficult passages of Paul where he seems to be very clearly prohibiting the role of women in the church, limiting their their roles from from leadership and, and teaching? There's actually three different passages, and and we just have time to briefly look at one, so we're going to look at the most challenging one, the hardest one. Uh, Let me read a few verses from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, where it reads, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, based on passages like this, many Christians believe that the most biblical position is women should not be allowed to have leadership positions in the church today. But there's a different way to understand it. Pastor uh, Bruxy Cavey and Pastor Daryl Johnson both helped me a lot with this, along with a, a book I've been reading called Why Not Women?, But the Apostle Paul here says, a woman is not to lead in the church because she may be like Eve in the Garden of of Eden. She may be more easily deceived. And and it kind of begs the question, why was Eve more easily deceived? Was it just because of her gender? You know, are, are women in general more easily deceived? Well, Looking at the history of the world where men have mostly been in charge, I think you could argue a contrary case, right? I'm not so sure. But we do know that Paul says she was more easily deceived because Adam was created first. She was created second. Well, what does that have to do with anything? How could, could that make anyone more easily deceived because they were created second? Well, when you go back to the Genesis story, you find out that when God created the man, Adam, God immediately gave him boundaries. Uh, He he, he gave him the law. This is the first Torah. You may not eat from that tree. You can eat from everything else, but don't eat the fruit from that tree. And then when, when Eve was created, we'd assume that Adam was used by God to teach Eve. And then Adam and Eve would, would teach others. It doesn't necessarily mean that there was a chain of of who was more or less easily deceived or who's in charge or not, but God always partners with people to teach his law, to teach teach his instructions to us. So why would Eve be more easily deceived? Because she heard God's law indirectly through another human being, rather than directly from God himself. Bruxy Cavey says that's always kind of a setup for deception. You know, when you hear God's word for yourself, when you study God's 
word directly, uh, you know, when, when you meditate on it, when you think about it, you'll actually be more clear-headed about it. You'll actually be more assured about it. But when you only hear it indirectly from others, you, you just show up to church and you kind of hear it secondhand, just listening to talks about it, other people talking about it, you'll always be more easily deceived, right? Haven't you found that to be true? And the women in the early church in the first century where, where Paul was writing, they, they never had the chance to study Torah. They, they, they never had the chance in that culture to, to be students, to read, to, to read the Bible for themselves. They were like Eve in the garden. They were, they were more easily deceived. Paul says, don't let them lead. He says, you need to start learning. Notice he says, a woman needs to begin to learn. We don't notice this. <laughs> We think of that as being a derogatory line. That's actually an empowering line. It's actually quite radical and revolutionary what Paul was saying because women weren't students in that culture. Men were the students. Men grew up in Jewish culture studying the Torah from when they were, when they were small. Women didn't get that privilege. Think Yanni, or what's that film? Uh, Yentl, Yentl, you know? Um, where was I? Learning. It was radical. <laughs> Paul says a woman needs to learn. And, and what Paul, Paul here was doing, what really was, he was planting a seed for future generations of women who can study and read and learn from themselves that they should be allowed to lead in the church. But when you, when you have someone who doesn't have a direct experience of, of God's word, it can be a dangerous thing to put somebody in charge. I'm, I'm thinking about it this way. In the church, the metaphor of our relationship between men and women is, is family. It's brother and sister. We are family, right? And just like in our homes, brothers aren't always in charge. And sisters aren't always in charge. When parents are, 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 are going away or leaving the home, who do they put in charge? Usually the oldest, or the most mature in our household, sometimes it was the youngest because he was more of a rule keeper. The oldest was more of a rule breaker. And so we knew if we put the younger one in charge, we'd be safer. The house would not burn down when we came home. That was kind of the thing. But, but the same thing is kind of happens in the church. We, we're selective about who we bring into eldership. We want them to be mature and thoughtful in their faith. We want them to know the Bible. We want them to, to, to know the, the, the arc of the story but we're brother and sister. And let me just say this, that you know, we, we read a passage like this one in 1 Timothy and, and, and the others that are in, in Scripture as well. You know from a plain reading of Scripture, it just seems to say women are out. You know, like, like just if you, if you were to read that passage by itself, it would be, seem very clear that God doesn't approve of, of women being in, in, in any kind of Christian leadership or, or, or being teachers, and that by doing that, by actually affirming that in any kind of way, we're actually being unfaithful to Scripture. And I know some of you have that concern. We, you you want to be faithful to Scripture. I want to be faithful to Scripture. But I also want to challenge us to a thoughtful reading of Scripture uh, that considers the original language. I, I mean, the, that, that considers some of the biases that some of our modern translators have brought to some of those passages. And, and and it's pretty consistent, actually, that some of those passages have words that can be translated different ways, and they've chosen ways that have a bias towards men. I, I'm, I'm not speaking out of turn here. I think that's the way it's been. 
I, I, I think uh, we, we looked at the, like the word servant or helper or minister or, or deacon or, or helper, I should say. Um, I, I also want to challenge us to a thoughtful reading of Scripture that considers the, the whole counsel of God, the, the entire arc of Scripture that goes back and considers those texts in Genesis. What was God's, you know, actual design? What was his hopes for humanity? And then the trajectory of the gospel. I mean, I said Paul planted a seed there. Do you know, you know something that Scripture doesn't prohibit, but all Christians would be against today? Slavery. Actually, you know, there's, there's guidelines of how slaves are to behave towards their masters in Scripture, but there's no outright slavery is wrong. But the seeds were planted in the New Testament and, and in the Bible of the value of a person that said slavery is inherent, inherently wrong. And so Christians became the abolitionists. Christians were the ones who, who were freedom seekers for the slaves. The seeds were there and the trajectory was there and the trajectory is there for, for women in, in, I believe, Christian leadership and ministry. And then, of course, just the, the unique first century cultural issues that, that Paul was speaking into. We, we sometimes just don't know quite what, what was going on in a community and the issues that, that he was speaking to. A plain reading of Scripture without considering all those factors can very well miss the point and lead us astray. You don't have to take my word for it. I've included on your, your sermon notes today resources, books you can read, and there's many, many of them that consider this topic and wrestle with these scriptures. And if you're doubting me, I'd encourage you to do your own study on this topic. Let me, let me just throw out you one final passage this morning. Thank you for your patience, but this is just such an important deal as to how we do church. So I want to just um, take another couple moments. A little background for this last passage is the, in the ancient world, in the morning when rabbis would get up, they would say a daily prayer. And it wasn't the Lord's prayer, it was this prayer. Blessed art thou, O God, for you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Imagine that prayer, huh? Interesting thing, Paul was probably brought up on that prayer. But then Jesus enters Paul's life and he receives the Holy Spirit and Paul becomes gripped with this whole new vision of this new creation community. And then under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote these words in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These are some of the most incredible words. Uh, writer Thomas Cahill says that this is the, the very first expression of egalitarianism in the history of human literature. I believe, and our church believes, that when you take into account the whole of Scripture, the, the fact that everybody was made in God's image and, and that all were recipients of Christ's atoning work on the cross, that the clear weight of evidence is that God's plan for the human race was to be a redeemed community where, where men and women equally share in, in the image of God, in the giftings of the Holy Spirit, and in the ministry of the church. Bill and Darcy, do you want to come on up? And we're going to consider how we might respond today. I want to lead you in, in some, just some thinking here. What do we do with this? If you're a man, uh, I, I'd... I'd love to challenge you to thank God for and cheer on the women in your life. 
whether it be a, a mother or a sister or a wife or a daughter, cheer them on. You have no idea the, the kind of empowering difference you can make with your words to the women in your life. I want, I want to say this morning, I'm so grateful this morning, I'm married to Angel. Um, some might say I've got a gift of teasing her from the front. And uh, I have, and it's a great temptation of mine. Sometimes it's not cool. And I want to say I'm sorry for any time I've ever diminished you. Uh, I think the world of this woman. And uh, I want to say, uh, you know what her top teaching, pardon me, you know what her top gifts are? When she does a spiritual gift inventory, you know what they are? Leadership and teaching. Those are her top two gifts. I, I think it would be crazy for us as a church, church not to have her employing those gifts. I'm so glad that, that we're in, an, in the kind of environment where we can say, go for it. We're cheering you on. So men, would you look for and call out the gifting you see in the women in your life. You don't know the power you have. Again, men, if there's a relational breakdown or if there's an attitude problem or you just simply have some chauvinistic tendencies, you think somehow that men are better, or simply a pattern of, of diminishing women in any way, or there's mishandled sexuality, or, or, or a conflict between you and your spouse or somebody at work or, or, or someone, a family or a friend. Or if simply you feel threatened when, when women are, are placed in places of leadership, you're, you're threatened by women leaders, I'd encourage you to ask God, God, would you change my heart? Would you help me be with women like Jesus was with women? Would you ha help me to have Jesus' heart for women? If you're a woman this morning, know that you're made and cherished by God. <laughs> you bear his image. I I I'd ask you to, to, to help, ask God to, to help you become all he's made you to be because you carry God's calling on your life. Be courageous. Be energized in the use of the gifts that God has given you. You're gifted. God's, God's gifted you. Women, I want to be really clear on this. We need, as a church, more than just one half of the image of God represented to us. We need, we need all of, our, of your perspective. We need to hear your voice. Again, I'm so glad to be part of a church that encourages people to serve on the basis of giftedness and, and not gender. I'm, I'm so glad to be part of a church that says to our daughters, as well as to our sons, you learn and grow and lead and teach and contribute and, and, and reach the fullest God-given potential you can reach to help every person you can help. Let's, let's all join together, if you would, if you'd stand with me. And let's thank God that he created us, men and women. He created us to experience oneness and unity. And, and let's repent of any attitudes that, that work at disunity. Let's, let's work at, at being an example to our world. 
of, of the kind of relationships between men and women that would affirm all people and, and, and be an example of God's grace to the world. Would you just let's close our eyes and let's, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for speaking to us this morning. And, and we want to pray that you might give us your vision of our lives that we might not just hold on to a, a, a faulty, faulty idea or at least help us to grapple with this, this issue in a new way, Lord, we, I pray. Grant us grace to be the kind of church that lifts up and celebrates those you've gifted, that actually cheers them on and, and wants to see them released into to influence and to power. I, 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 we pray for the women in our church this morning, God. Would you raise them up to be who they're, they're meant to be? And if there's been, been something, uh, 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 an idea that's kept them from stepping out in gifts that they have, I pray you'd give them fresh courage and boldness to step out by your grace. Help us, uh, Lord, to, to deal with any attitudes we have that we just need to repent of. We want to have your heart, Jesus. We pray you might grant us grace to have your heart for for one another, that we might be truly brothers and sisters who love one another well. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, remain standing while, while we sing just a, just a chorus of song. Let's just do the last, um, if we just could have uh, the king of my life at Crowley now, just that last verse. Um, May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee. Even thy cup of grief to bear, thou hast done all for, lest I forget. Lest I forget Gethsemane Lest I forget Thine agony Lest I forget Thy love for me Lead me to Calvary I'm so glad that you came to church today. Um, be thinking of our men, we got a, a bunch of guys who are with dads who are with children at uh, Seymour this weekend. Hopefully they've survived intact. Uh, I think I heard there was 30 going. Uh, I, I, I thought my vision was three dads and 27 children. That was my vision. Um, so be thinking of them as they return back today. Uh, um, but I, I'm so glad we get to be the church together, that, that God's put us together and we're so different, uh, different cultures different genders, and God's, uh, God's happy to form us into a, a community, a, a new creation community that actually is meant to change the world, and uh, he's gifted you to do that, and so again, in this series, we just, I just would want to send you out today to, and say, say, in this church, but also in, in wherever God's planted you in the world, may you go and employ the gifts that God has given you. And, and unwrap them and use them for the sake of God's kingdom and for his glory. Amen? Uh, we, you come to the front. If, if you didn't have a chance to, to take communion during the service, feel free to come and, and take it now. Uh,
We're having uh, refreshments in the back. And can I say this? Happy St. Patrick's Day, all you Irish folk. Any, Ir any Irish in the mix? Let's give the Irish a hand today, shall we? God bless you as you go.